This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is about a Victorian writer who advocated for social reform and began the tradition of Christmas ghost stories. Happy December, my dear listeners. I know we're already a week in, but November and December are always really hectic over here in perfume land, so I had to readjust my schedule a little bit, but here we are. Also, remember how I said last month that I was all excited because I got fancy new show statistics? Well, it turns out that there's a lot more of you listening than I thought. I was going to guess maybe 10 people, but apparently it's more like 500. So, hi everyone! Thanks for hanging out and talking about interesting dead people with me. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to share this awesome review from someone completely new to podcasts. She's also a historical costumer, which I hope she sends in some pictures because that sounds like an amazing job. She also has probably the best handle ever in relation to her job. Captured Threads writes, I'm new to the podcast world and I'm such a fan now. I've only had the delight in listening to The Blood Countess and Marie Antoinette, but wow, your style and wit make history come alive and leave me thirsty for more. As a historical costumer, this makes it that much more rewarding to learn about these incredible people. Thank you. Captured Threads, thank you for that amazing review, and I'm so glad that you've discovered podcasts, although also I'm sorry because you're definitely going to go down the rabbit hole now. Okay, episode housekeeping is done. Let's get down to some wintry goodness. December is a really weird month because whatever holiday you celebrate or religion you identify with, there's this strange dichotomy of joy and sadness, light and darkness. And for light and darkness, I mean that quite literally. Here in Seattle, I swear to God, it gets dark at like 3.30, so it's pitch black by 6 p.m., but then everyone has winter lights strung up. It reminds me of horror movies where everyone is safe close to the light of the fire, but venture past that, and it's danger. In fact, my husband thought I was nuts because the other day I said I was in the mood to watch either a horror movie or a Hallmark movie. Tis the season, I guess. All of this is my long-winded way of saying, this month, we're spending some time with Charles Dickens. There are roughly 9 billion versions of A Christmas Carol, so to say that Dickens is a legend in wintry holiday storytelling is an understatement. I have a love-hate relationship with Charles Dickens. A Tale of Two Cities is my favorite book from the classical canon. I read Oliver Twist when I was 8 years old, and I've probably seen each of the 9 billion versions of A Christmas Carol. Even within all that, I didn't realize until I researched him that he's had a huge impact on my life and career. I mean, in the opening theme of Storical and on my business cards, I have the phrase, ghosts of words pass, for God's sakes. The thing is, I had never read about Charles Dickens' The Man until a few years ago. I just read his stories before that and thought the man a genius, and that was kind of the end of it, just face value. But a few years ago, I heard about how awful he was to his wife in the later years of their marriage. And when I say awful, we're talking despicable. And there's no trigger warning needed. 
It was emotional abuse, so more like terrible and mean from a feminist standpoint, but no one was physically harmed. We'll get to the full story later in the episode, of course, but for years, I was so turned off to his work that I couldn't stomach it. Researching for this episode was actually a joy, though. People are complicated, and they say never meet your heroes, and obviously in this case I can't, but learning about this complicated human being and how his stories came to be was fascinating. Obviously, I can't excuse the mistreatment of his wife, but it gave me a much clearer picture of the context that some of the most famous and heavily adapted stories ever written came from. And all the recommendations I have for you at the end are going to help you settle in for some nice, cozy, over-sentimental winter's tales, so get excited. So as we like to do on Storical, imagine yourself walking the cold, snowy streets of Victorian London as we dive into the life of Charles Dickens. Chapter 1. The Workhouse. In modern times, it's kind of become a therapy cliche that all problems in a person's life are manifestations of some hidden childhood trauma. For Charles Dickens, that's actually pretty legit. Dickens happily used real people as the basis for his stories all the time, but he came back to the themes of poverty and orphan children time and again because for him, it was lived experience. Dickens was born on February 7th, 1812 in Portsmouth, England to John and Elizabeth Dickens. Charles was the second child out of eight, and if you think that's a lot, wait till we get to how many kids Charles had. John Dickens was a lowly payroll officer for the Royal Navy. Now, as a clerk with eight children, there really wasn't a ton of money to go around. But if you couple that with the fact that John and Elizabeth were, how shall we say this, lovers of revelry, debts mounted up. The two not only enjoyed attending a party, but were frequent hosts at their house. As a Navy man, John also got called up for jobs, and the family moved several times during Charles's early years. They also hired a woman named Mary Weller to act as a governess and otherwise care for their eight children. Mary was a keen storyteller and made up bedtime stories about a pirate named Captain Murderer. Between that and his voracious love of books, we can see where the writing came from. But wait, there's more. Charles, to me anyway, I'd be curious to know if anyone out there has a different read on him, strikes me as the model for Pip in Great Expectations. He wanted to go to school, and his ultimate goal was to become a gentleman. School was not guaranteed back then, so apart from some early schooling paid on the Navy's dime, the family only had the means to send one of their children to private school. That child was Fanny, who showed great musical talent. Charles was passed over. By this point, the debts were getting out of hand, and the family had to downsize to a smaller house and get rid of the nanny. They even left a house in Kent when it seemed their debts were about to catch up to them. And now, dear listeners, we come to that formative childhood experience so traumatizing, Charles spent the rest of his life making sense of it. When Charles was 12 years old, his father's debts caught up with him. Back then, you could actually go to jail for being poor, which I guess is not that dissimilar from today. But his father was sent to a debtor's prison called Marshalsea. The debt that was his downfall was a 42-pound credit at the local baker's. Apparently, when debtors' prisons were a thing, your family would go live with you at prison. So Elizabeth and six of their children went to live with John at Marshalsea. Left behind to not only fend for himself, but also sent to work, was 12-year-old Charles. Again, 12 years old. Young Charles got a job at Warren's Blacking Warehouse. 
His job was to put labels on pots of blacking, which was, I guess, some sort of inky substance used for polishing boots. And for his long hours of work, we're talking 10 hours a day, in the ramshackle, rat-infested warehouse, he earned six shillings a week with Sundays off. He sent what money was left over from room and board to his parents. It wasn't all bad. At the warehouse, he met a resourceful boy named Bob Fagan, whose name he immortalized in Oliver Twist. Dickens would visit his family in prison on Sundays, along with his sister, who somehow managed to keep her spot at music school. Luckily, the stint in debtor's prison lasted three months upon the death of John Dickens' mother. When she died, she left a small inheritance of 450 pounds to her son. John Dickens was able to persuade the court to let him out of prison since he could pay back his debt with the inheritance. The family left Marshall C. and took up lodging with Charles. Charles, of course, was like, yes, finally, I can get out of this hellhole warehouse. But before he did, there was a disagreement with his mother. Dickens's mother wanted him to continue working at the warehouse. Charles wasn't thought to be particularly gifted. He was just an average, ahem, 12-year-old. So I'm guessing she just figured he might as well keep working and support his family. His father, however, decided that Charles could return to school. And so Charles was able to get two more years of schooling under his belt. However, he felt slighted and abandoned by both of his parents, his father for ending up in prison and his mother for not standing up for him and wanting him to continue working under inhumane conditions. He later wrote of his mother, I never afterwards forgot. I never shall forget. I never can forget that my mother was warm for my being sent back. Now, I think most everyone today who has spent time studying Dickens knows at minimum that his father was sent to debtor's prison and Charles himself was a child laborer. But we take for granted that despite the eventual fame that Dickens had in his own lifetime, no one knew about this. He didn't talk about this chapter of his life in interviews. It was something people only found out about him after he died. And that, dear listeners, is where we set our scene. A large family struggling in poverty, a child left to fend for himself in an uncaring world, and the spark of both rage and pain that would permeate every character he would soon bring to life. Chapter 2 a Dickensian journey. They say authors draw from life experience to create their stories. Dickens had plenty of material to draw from. When his schooling finished in 1827 at age 15, he sought out another job for himself, albeit something more akin to an office job than industrial warehouse work. He found it in the law office of two attorneys, Ellis and Blackmore. Charles was given a job as a junior clerk, which he held for a year before moving on up to becoming a court reporter. As a court reporter, Charles got to report on politics and debates in Parliament. He attended night school to learn shorthand. Dickens liked the work well enough, and his legal writing definitely influenced several of his later novels, such as Bleak House and Who Can Forget the Court Scenes in A Tale of Two Cities. But it was the law. No offense to lawyers, but for someone with a vivid imagination and somewhat dramatic disposition, writing about legal matters was super boring for him so he found his respite in the theater. It's rumored that he went to the theater every day for three years. He knew all the monologues of his favorite actor, joined the Garrett Club, a gentleman's club for those invested in drama and letters, and still around to this day, and was BFF with William McCready, a respected actor whom he later dedicated Nicholas Nickleby. Next to his dream of becoming a gentleman was his dream of becoming an actor. During his brief stints at school, he performed in and directed plays. While he was clerking, he would go to minor theaters where basically anyone could just show up and play whoever you wanted in a professional production. 
He was also something of an amateur improv comedian because he delighted in making his colleagues at the law office laugh at his impersonations of characters in the news. At 21 years old, when the weight of working in the law office became too much to bear, he signed up for an audition with a theater manager at Covent Garden. But on the day of his big break, he came down with a severe chest cold and had to cancel. Dickens was then offered a position as a court reporter for his uncle, and journalism he would find to be a calling. He got to travel across England covering campaigns for election for the Morning Chronicle. His first fictional piece, A Dinner at Poplar Walk, was published in 1833 under the pen name Boz. So the great Charles Dickens originally went by this kind of absurd name, Boz. This strange pseudonym came about because he nicknamed his younger brother Augustus Moses, and then I guess someone had a cold and it sounded like Bozus. So this, of course, was hilarious to him, and from there he shortened it to Boz and started his career as a writer under the name Boz. A collection of his newspaper and magazine articles, as well as a few fictional stories, were then compiled in 1836 as the book Sketches by Boz, which were character sketches of people's lives in London, and it also contained illustrations. This was well-received, and not long after, Dickens started writing the Pickwick Papers. Dickens wrote many of his books as serial installments that would appear in newspapers and periodicals. I actually listened to a podcast that made the case that Dickens would have been great at marketing and social media today because he was doing all the best practices we have today back in the 1800s. I'll link to that in the show notes, but the Pickwick Papers, this eventual book brought Dickens fame almost overnight. Besides being the first example of Dickens's propensity toward absolutely absurd names, wait till we get to Martin Chuzzlewit, the Pickwick Papers were a serial adventure series, and interestingly enough, at least one of the storylines was a satire about a lawsuit against Lord Melbourne, Queen Victoria's first and favorite prime minister, who, spoiler alert, we will talk about at length next month. That same year, Dickens began to write Oliver Twist, which, like Pickwick before it, was serialized before being turned into a book. None other than Queen Victoria herself read and loved both books to the point that she attempted to get Dickens to meet with her for more than 30 years. He wasn't too keen on royalty, though, and kept refusing her. But we'll circle back to that later. 1836 was the year that Dickens had his breakthrough, and his journey toward becoming one of the greatest English authors after Shakespeare was just beginning. Chapter 3. Never close your lips to those whom you have already opened your heart. Okay, so we've got the rags to riches part down. Now let's move to the realm of love. Charles Dickens first had his heart broken by Maria Beadnell. Upon seeing her in 1830, when he was just 18, he fell head over heels in love. I looked up some pictures of her and can confirm she was very pretty in that old-timey Victorian England kind of way. There's not much evidence about her side of the story, but Dickens described her actions toward him as hot and cold meaning she was that cliche of leading him on when it was convenient and then rejecting him when something better came along. Her parents didn't think much of Dickens. Besides being too young, they looked down on him for being a lowly court clerk. Her dad was a banker, so they were solidly middle class and well off. Maria's parents didn't think Charles had any prospects, so they encouraged her to look elsewhere. They had an on-again, off-again relationship for three years until Dickens had the idea of hosting a party for his 21st birthday as a Hey, I'm of age now. He invited the Beadnells and they all attended. Charles got Maria alone and tried to express his feelings for her, namely that he wanted to marry her and start a family post-haste. Her response was pretty cold. 
She laughed at him and called him a boy, which completely wounded his pride. They broke up for good a short time later, and she married another man, a banker. For her part, Maria showed up as a character in David Copperfield. Remember I said Charles was a reporter for the Morning Chronicle? Well, the Morning Chronicle was edited by a music critic named George Hogarth, who had moved to England from Scotland with his family in 1834. Hogarth was also friends with Sir Walter Scott, who was a Scottish writer Charles held in great esteem. Charles began to frequent Mr. Hogarth's house, and it was there that he met Catherine Hogarth, the eldest daughter of his boss. Catherine fancied herself a writer and also loved the theater. Throughout their marriage, she acted in minor parts, both in England and abroad. The daughter of a newspaper man, Catherine, Charles felt, was an intellectual equal. Remember this tidbit for later, though. Charles had just been burned by Maria, but now at 23 years old, Charles was desperate to get married. Remember the whole lousy childhood where his family went to prison and he stayed behind and mommy didn't want him to come home when they came back? Well, Charles was super enamored with the idea of having his own family to care for and craved the stability and normalcy that he saw in the families of both Maria and Catherine. Catherine especially was from a large, happy, middle-class family, and Charles was somewhat envious of that and eager to create it for himself. He proposed to Catherine in 1835, and they were married in 1836, between the first few installments of the Pickwick Papers. So he got with Catherine right before his star really took off, and he absolutely adored and worshipped her. Her younger sister Mary moved in with them, I guess to help out with establishing their new household, and Charles was extremely close with her. A year later, in 1837, Mary grew ill and literally died in Charles' arms, and he was inconsolable. He later modeled his character, Little Nell, on Mary, and good lord, did people get mad at him when he killed her character off. Also, in 1837, Catherine gave birth to the couple's first of 10 children. Yes, 10 children, another absurdly large family here on Storical. The couple were overjoyed and named their son Charles Boz Dickens, so I'm sure he was thrilled about that when he grew up. Their first few years of marriage were quite happy. Charles was an up-and-coming writer with a nice bit of fame. He had the pretty happy wife he had so longed for, and the kids were coming. Moving into the 1840s, Charles had under his belt the Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, the Old Curiosity Shop, and Barnaby Rudge. Barnaby Rudge was reviewed by none other than an upstart American writer you may have heard of, Edgar Allan Poe, and this fostered an odd little friendship that I am saving for next week, and you better tune in because I've been excited about this for about a month. It will not disappoint, I promise. Unfortunately for Dickens... A meteoric rise is often accompanied by an equally devastating fall, and his luck would change, at least for a time. Chapter 4. America and Disillusionment Dickens definitely enjoyed the recognition he was receiving as a famous author. People would stop him in the streets, and he was always out walking about town. He was a prodigious walker. He had terrible insomnia, and so he would take to the streets of London, sometimes walking 20 miles in a night. He did this to settle his overactive mind and work out his many stories. He was very visible and accessible in the community. He believed strongly in social reform, as well as education, as a route for people to better their circumstances. There was nary a charity he didn't contribute funds to. On the subject of funds, because of his newfound wealth, he had family members coming out of the woodwork hoping to get their cut of the author pie. The worst offender, however, was his father. Not only would his father come directly to Charles to ask for money, he would also go to Charles's publishers and rich friends behind his back and ask them for money. 
In the case of the publishers, he was basically trying to sneak advances off his son's future royalties. This, of course, infuriated Dickens, who felt conflicted in that he wanted to be a good son and take care of his family, but it stung considering all the childhood trauma he had suffered because of his father's mistakes. Deciding he wanted to get away from it all and have an opportunity to indulge in the fruits of his labor by traveling, Dickens decided to take a tour of America with his wife. Their children were left with Catherine's sister, Georgina, who would permanently live with the family and care for the children from that point forward. Dickens' fame was not confined to England. Upon arriving in America, Dickens was constantly mobbed by his American fans. Most of the attention was harmless enough, stopping him for an autograph or a chat or to invite him to a party or charity event. However, having people do this all the time was grating on him. Now that was the easy harassment that he dealt with. There was some more sinister stuff going on too. And I can't believe we're halfway through this episode and I'm only now telling you about how Dickens was a total dandy. Charles Dickens never met a scarf or a cane that he didn't love. The man liked to accessorize, so even if people on the street didn't know who he was based on his face, just one look at his clothing and everyone knew that Dickens was about. People would literally rip the fur from his coat and try to steal his belongings as some sort of a sick keepsake of the famous author. To say Dickens did not enjoy this is an understatement. His goal on this trip was not just to relax, but to also kind of do something of an anthropological study on America. To this end, he and Catherine would tour poorhouses and mental hospitals, trying to see how the American system stacked up against what they had going on in England. One interesting little side note here is that he visited a school for the blind and met Laura Bridgman, who was the first deaf and blind person to receive an education. Helen Keller's parents read his account of meeting Bridgman, and that was what inspired them to try and get a teacher for Helen. Fun little connection there. Dickens and his wife ended up spending six months in America, but there were two big issues he had. First off, he did the thing we all do, where we're so excited about a trip that when we actually get there, it completely lets us down and doesn't meet our expectations. Dickens had thought America was some sort of magical utopia, and when he found out that it wasn't, slavery was still a thing for one, he was pretty disappointed and disillusioned. Second, the rudeness and low-key assault he experienced in America on account of his fame left a bad taste in his mouth. And to think, roughly 200 years later, nothing has changed. Anyway, upon returning to England, he published a travelogue called American Notes, and it was pretty scathing. He did not mince words about his distaste for Americans. He had five major critiques about America, and I'm going to list them off here and try not to shudder because, again, nothing has changed. Slavery. That one's obvious. We don't have that anymore, but there's still tons of racism. Two, violence. Three, extreme individualism. Four, commercialism. And five, he complained about how dirty it was. I guess what really grinded his gears was that people in America spit all the time. Reading that list, I'd love to know what he would say about America now. I'm getting a mental image of Charles Dickens tweeting about it. Right after the publication of American Notes, Dickens followed it up with Martin Chuzzlewit, again with those ludicrous Dickensian names. Chuzzlewit was super anti-American and also did very poorly sales-wise. The books went over about as well as you'd expect in America. Dickens had made friends with Washington Irving, author of Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Side note, I've been to Washington Irving's grave in the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery and it's really beautiful. 
Anyway, they had had a correspondence prior to his trip and then hung out a bunch when Dickens was in New York. But then after he published American Notes and Martin Chuzzlewit, they stopped talking and Irving was quoted calling Dickens outrageously vulgar. And don't you worry, because I have more of his catty relationships with other authors coming up. Chapter 5. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it, link by link. Apart from his brutal childhood, this was a moment of rock bottom for Dickens. Chuzzlewit had sold so poorly that his publishers did not have confidence that his next book would sell. On top of that, William Makepeace Thackeray, the author of Vanity Fair, was something of a frenemy to Dickens, and in the early 1840s, his star was on the rise, which frustrated and envious Dickens. On top of that, Dickens was now up to his fourth child, and Catherine was pregnant with a fifth. He still loved his wife, and he found her a great travel companion on his trip to America, but the mounting costs of a growing family, in addition to the debts he had with his father and his brothers, all of it stressed him out. He was the patron of many charities and had an image to uphold of his wealth and generosity, for now he was the gentleman that he had always dreamed he'd be. He was growing resentful of Catherine at this point because he believed it was her fault that their family was growing so large, which I swear to God I want to smack him for that. Mommy issues definitely contributed to his less than feminist view of women. His publishers were growing so concerned with sales that they threatened to cut his monthly salary. Under so much financial duress, Dickens kept up his 20-mile-a-day walking habit and over the course of six weeks wrote the timeless holiday classic, A Christmas Carol, finishing in early December 1843. There was just one hitch. Because of the failure of Chuzzlewit, his publishers had Dickens pay for the publishing of A Christmas Carol up front. Dickens was proud of the work and insisted it have a fancy leather binding with gilded pages. When the design was not to his satisfaction, they redesigned the book, and it was ready just two days before its published date of December 19th. Each copy was five shillings, which was a heavily discounted price in relation to the production costs, but Dickens wanted everyone, even those not as well off, to be able to enjoy it. The first run of 6,000 copies sold out by Christmas Eve. But because of the publishing hit, he only made 230 pounds when he had expected at least 1,000 pounds. It was an instant classic with almost universal praise, but he was disappointed it didn't make the money he had expected. But it did reaffirm his place as the Victorian era's most accomplished writer. After A Christmas Carol, he settled into a steady career as an editor, publisher, and journalist. All the while, the children kept coming. Catherine began to lose her looks and had extremely low energy. In fact, based on Dickens' own description of her, it's very likely she suffered from postpartum depression. In the 1850s, she published a book called What Shall We Have for Dinner? Satisfactorily answered by numerous bills of fare for from two to 18 persons under the pen name Lady Maria Clutterbuck, which I wonder if he came up with that name for her. But otherwise, she was solely consumed with caring for the children and home, along with her sister Georgina. At the height of his dissatisfaction with his wife, he received a letter from Maria Beadnell. Remember her? Well, her husband was in some financial trouble, and she was a fan of the great Charles Dickens' work, so feeling the pangs of his first heartbreak, he agreed to meet her in secret. When they finally met up, it had been 24 years, and she was not at all what he remembered. This was definitely a case of winning the breakup. He found her to be spoiled and flighty and realized that she just wanted to be in his life because he was famous. He immediately regretted having met her, especially behind Catherine's back. He avoided her from then on. 
The guilt he felt about the incident must not have lasted too long, however. In 1857, he wrote a play with Wilkie Collins. Now, many people believe Edgar Allan Poe wrote the first detective novel, but he actually wrote the first detective short story, and Wilkie has the distinction of the first detective novel. Anyway, Dickens and Wilkie were chummy and wrote this play. 18-year-old Nellie Turnin was cast in the play. Dickens had been growing ever resentful of Catherine over the years, and in something of a midlife crisis, began a secret affair with the 18-year-old. Because Dickens was so famous, this affair had to be kept extremely hush-hush. I'm going to be real with you right now. The Victorians were freaks. Absolute freaks. But instead of embracing their freakiness, they had that whole, I mustn't show ankle mentality. So despite the fact that everyone had something going on behind closed doors, if it came to light that Dickens was having an affair, he would lose respect, credibility, and probably work. And guess how Catherine found out about the affair? In a scene directly out of love, actually, a bracelet that was intended for Nellie was delivered to Catherine. She confronted him, and he denied it. Meanwhile, rumors started getting around that Dickens was having an affair, and many suspected Catherine's sister, Georgina, who was their children's governess. The rumors got so out of hand that Dickens himself wrote to the newspapers vehemently denying anything was amiss and instead calling his wife hysterical. Here we get to the part where I lost a lot of respect for him. Instead of just owning up to it, he tried to have his wife committed to get out of the marriage. Asylums during the Victorian era were not happy places, and he tried to have her committed. Remember I said she had what we'd call postpartum depression? Well, he used that to get a doctor out to come assess her. The doctor, of course, was like, um, what the hell? She's not mad. So he told Dickens, no, we're not going to be committing her. God, it makes my blood boil. Anyway, in 1858, they legally separated. Georgina sided with Charles, presumably so she would still have a place to crash, and Charles got full custody over his children. If you're wondering why I've barely mentioned his 10 children except to illustrate his financial burdens, it's because for all his love of poor children, he didn't have much affection for his actual children. He was barely involved in their lives and found all of them disappointing. But even still, he didn't want Catherine to have contact with them. Catherine ultimately outlived Charles by nine years and remained loyal to his legacy. On her deathbed, she gave her letters from Charles to her daughter and pleaded with her to give them to the British Museum that the world may know Charles loved me once. Chapter 6, A Secret Life Once their separation was on the books, things did quiet down for Dickens' public reputation. But interestingly, he still had some element of shame or fear of the repercussions of his new relationship because Nellie Turnham remained his big secret. He bought her a townhome in London under the name of her sister, and it was an under-the-cover-of-darkness type of situation. He made her give up acting, and Nellie basically disappeared from public life and was kept in complete isolation, save for visits from her family. Dickens was in his mid-40s when they met, she 18, and it sounds like there might have been an element of Nellie wanting a father figure in her life, as her own father died in an asylum when she was just a young girl. Now, the 1860s were the final decade of Dickens' life, and this was the stage in which he wrote his magnum opus, A Tale of Two Cities, and Great Expectations. Those two were books written at the height of his mastery of craft. Nellie moved to France for a time in the early 1860s. It's speculated that she gave birth to a child abroad. 
that child died in infancy. There's no definitive proof of that, but historians have speculated thanks to evidence in a diary Dickens kept that had been lost on his final trip to America. Nellie came back in 1865, and Dickens bought her a home outside of London. So she was basically a secret wife to him that he would visit in the evenings and on weekends, but he never brought her around to meet the kids or took her on any public outings, which, poor Nellie. They did remain together for the remainder of his life, though, which was about 13 years. Upon her return to England, Nellie and Dickens were traveling when their train derailed. Ten people were killed in this accident, while 40 more were injured. Dickens and Nellie were not seriously hurt, and Dickens himself rushed to help his fellow passengers, and it saved several lives, actually. However, this tragedy left a grave mark on Dickens. After this point, the words did not come as easily, and his enormous output of work was halted. Instead, Dickens undertook a pilgrimage of sorts, performing readings of his work. He made a final trip to America, where he hung out with Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Ralph Waldo Emerson. He softened his views of America, finding it much different than his first trip, and promised never to denounce Americans again. When he returned to England, he basically went on tour of the country, giving what were dubbed farewell readings. He was basically a rock star of his time. Author readings weren't a huge thing back in the day, and thanks to his flair for drama and love of the theater, Dickens was an electrifying orator especially since he was reading his own work, and he had enormous pride and healthy ego about his words. He booked 100 readings and was able to complete 75 of them. He was approaching 58 years old, and in April of 1869, he suffered his first stroke and had to cancel the rest of the tour. Instead of just resting, however, he decided to work on his final book, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. In March of 1870, Queen Victoria, after 30-plus years of trying, finally succeeded in getting this elusive author to meet her at the palace. She gifted him a novel she had published called Leaves from the Journal of Our Life in the Highlands. And I thought this was pretty hilarious, but he had actually reviewed it when it came out and called it preposterous. Despite his disenchantment with royalty, he did not tell her that and graciously accepted the book. She told him that she had never gotten to see one of his popular readings, hoping he might grant her a private audience. But he declined and instead offered to tell her the ending to Edwin Drood, which was as yet uncompleted. It was Victoria's turn to decline, however. She was an avid fan and didn't want the ending spoiled. They sat together for a spell, and that was the end of their first and last meeting. Three months later, on June 9th, 1870, which creepily enough was five years to the day of his train accident, Dickens suffered a massive stroke and died he wanted a private funeral in Rochester Cathedral, but England was like, um, no, we love you too much, and he was buried in Poet's Corner of Westminster Abbey. Queen Victoria said of Dickens's death, he is a very great loss. Nellie went on to remarry and have children, and died in 1914. Her affair with Charles Dickens was not known to anyone outside the family until after the last of Dickens' children died when a friend of one of the children related the story in a book. And it's a shame that Queen Victoria didn't take him up on his offer because Dickens never completed the mystery of Edwin Drood. Chapter 7, A Grand Dickensian Time. Dickens was a complicated man. His writing, interest in social reform, and his personal charity helped a lot of people. He also caused a lot of pain to his own family. Whatever your personal opinion of him, the work of Dickens has become the backbone of Western literature. Because so many of his stories are classics and he lived long ago enough that copyrights are long gone, 
there's an absolute plethora of adaptations of his work, as well as many stories featuring him as an actual character. If you are a super fan like me, where you'll get a lot of the references, you're in for an absolute treat because there are so many good books featuring Dickens, and many of them bring modernity to his style, which makes for a nostalgic, sentimental reads. Since we're so close to the holidays, and Dickens has such a strong association with the holiday spirit, I hope you'll check out some of these books before December is over. My absolute favorite that I read, starring Mr. Dickens, is called Mr. Dickens and His Carol by Samantha Silva. I listened to this book on audio last month when I was driving from Seattle to Portland, and good God, listeners, I was so happy. First off, I highly recommend the audio version because the narrator, Ewan Morton, I swear to God, he is Dickens. His rendering was perfect. Absolutely perfectly cast. The book is a dramatization of how Dickens came to write A Christmas Carol, and it's also good as a more entertaining nonfiction read in that they get a lot of his life events packed in there. This is a fantastic holiday read, so hop to it. Dodger by Terry Pratchett is an alternative universe retelling of Oliver Twist, and Charles Dickens himself is a character. If you're a Terry Pratchett fan, this is him at his best. Wonderful dialogue, a bit of mystery, very fun read. The last fiction starring Mr. Dickens that I read for this show, I hope you're sitting down because not only is the title amazing, but this is a series. The series is called A Dickens of a Crime. And it's about Charles Dickens solving mysteries with his wife, Kate, back when he still loved her. There's two out so far, A Tale of Two Murders and Grave Expectations. I obviously had to read Grave Expectations because that title is perfect, and it's everything you want from a cozy mystery starring Charles Dickens. Check this series out. It's super fun. Okay, moving on from fiction, let's talk nonfiction. If you're wanting to go full on into his life, check out Charles Dickens by Claire Tomalin. This is your standard biography, and it's meticulously researched and fascinating. She also wrote a book called The Invisible Woman that delves into the life of Nellie Turnham, and there was a movie adapted from The Invisible Woman that came out in 2013. If you want to get your biography from podcasts, there's a couple that I really liked. Interestingly, for Dickens, most of the podcast episodes out there are about one aspect of his life as opposed to all, so there were some cool topics. First up, we've got Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol by History Goes Bump. Pretty self-explanatory. Next, we've got The Illusionist, which I've mentioned here before. The episode How the Dickens Stole Christmas talks about what inspired Dickens for his famous Christmas stories, because he did write more than A Christmas Carol. And this one was fun because they interviewed people at a Dickens festival. The last one I enjoyed was from History Extra, one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Eating with Dickens, and they explore all the food descriptions in his writing. Go forth and get your listening on. Now, in terms of movie adaptations, I tried to watch The Man Who Invented Christmas, which stars Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey as Dickens. And I love Dan Stevens, but I did not love this movie. I lasted maybe 20 minutes and got annoyed. Fortunately, there's a metric ton of movie and TV adaptations of Dickens' work. You've got your Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow Great Expectations, which is so 90s bad that I love it. South Park, yes, the vulgar animated cartoon, actually tells the full story of Great Expectations and is narrated by Alex from A Clockwork Orange. Please don't think less of me, but I actually really like South Park. All right, then you've got your Muppet Christmas Carol, your Scrooged, and pretty much anything produced by BBC. 
I found a list of some of the great adaptations if you'd like to look more into films. There's a brand new A Christmas Carol out from the BBC this season, too, and it comes out December 19th, 2019. It stars Guy Pearce as Scrooge, and apparently Andy Serkis and Tom Hardy are in it. So I will definitely watch that. I'm actually taking my six-year-old to A Muppet Christmas Carol this weekend in Seattle. So indeed, thank you, Mr. Dickens. That's all I've got for you on this month's biography episode of Storical. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more people find the show. Tune in next week because I'm going to talk to you about a very important subject, namely Charles Dickens' talking pet raven named Grip. And then join me again next month as we look at the life of a teenaged queen who at the height of her reign was monarch to almost 400 million people. <laughs>